Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, we have the first of three parts of our art series, The Callback, from intern Shangalanka and me. In the first installment, we're going to hear from some of the organizations that support the creative community in both the North and the South, as well as a ballerina who reflects on how the last year has affected her and other artists. After that, we talk with Assemblyman Greg Hafen and indie columnist David Coborn about a bill that would restrict social media platforms from banning users. And at the end of the show, I chat with our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, about the big infrastructure bill that was presented in D.C. this week. The arts industry has been devastated by the pandemic over the past year. Cirque du Soleil shows have been canceled, Rat Pack cover bands in Reno have gone silent, and there was no Nutcracker in theaters this past Christmas. If shows haven't been canceled, they have been forced to move online for Zoom recitals or concerts, and many artists have lost their livelihoods. In Nevada, the arts and culture sector accounts for about 5.5% of the state's gross domestic product and more than 40,000 jobs, according to the Arts Action Fund. Now, as the state recovers from the pandemic, those in the industry are rallying behind a sense of community and pushing for a greater recognition of the arts. Intern Sean Galanka and I spoke with numerous members of the arts community over the past several weeks, and we'll be bringing you new stories on the podcast over the next few weeks, exploring what happened to the arts industry, how it's had to adapt as capacity limits and safety requirements remain, and where it's going moving forward. From here, I'll turn it over to Sean. Tracy Oliver has long fought for the arts. She serves as the executive director for the Sierra Arts Foundation, a nonprofit based out of Reno focused on bringing the voices of the creative community together through programs including artist grants and youth arts initiatives. Oliver has seen firsthand the struggles of the industry over the past year as it has grappled with some of the harsh realities of the COVID-19 pandemic. The arts and culture community was seriously impacted by the pandemic. I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is our performing artists, theater professionals, dance professionals, musicians, their livelihood just stopped on a dime. You know, we received a lot of notices. There was no rent money. There's no food money. I personally know of artists that ended up living in their cars. Oliver's group has supported Nevada artists for decades, and the Sierra Arts Foundation continued to provide help at a time when it was most needed mainly through two grants allocated by the City of Reno from Federal CARES Act funding. The state has reported nearly $5 million to date in federal relief funds directed to the arts and culture sector, and that doesn't include additional money local jurisdictions may have allocated to the arts. We were writing grants. We gave up about $180,000 last year in grant funding to our our artist community. CR Arts gave up to $1,000 per artist at the most crucial time, you know, right before the holidays, So every possible scenario that you can think of was happening to artists at that time. Loss of livelihood, loss of homes, fear of not being able to put food on the table. It happened to our artists. They're our neighbors and they're our friends. And it was absolutely Sierra Arts Foundation's commitment to assist. That massive need for help can be seen in the lives of the artists themselves. Oh my gosh. The canceled gigs of of 2020 were just devastating. That was Ananda Benaweber, a principal dancer and the associate art director for the Sierra Nevada Ballet, a professional ballet company based in Reno that also trains students through its ballet academy. Benaweber says she's been lucky because she's been able to maintain some of her work throughout the pandemic, including her job as a teacher. 
but she knows other artists who have not been so fortunate. Some people I know are like, because that is their full-time gig and they have not worked. March 17th last year, they have not worked a single day at their usual job since then. They're doing things like driving Uber and delivering for FedEx. And it's like, that kind of thing is really heartbreaking because you've got like really successful musicians who are really talented and stuff like that who are suddenly, you know, trying to make ends meet until things pick back up. On top of artists being out of work, the industry has had to navigate myriad safety restrictions over the past year. Oliver's organization operates art galleries in downtown Reno and Sparks, and she said she wanted to keep Sierra Art's doors open to provide a pleasant place for people amidst the pandemic. We felt strongly, being that we have a location downtown in both Reno and Sparks, that we wanted to keep our, our doors open and our lights on as much as we could just to keep those areas vibrant and safe. And we didn't want to have a, a dark building. So we worked straight through the pandemic. We just limited the folks that could come in. We limited the amount of staff that, that was there to greet people. But we had shows, for the most part, straight through. But other venues have struggled to stay open with minimal capacity. The state has limited gatherings to as few as 10 people at points during the pandemic. And even now, venues are limited to 50% capacity, which makes it difficult to make enough money to justify staying open. Sarah O'Connell is the founding director of Eat More Art Vegas, an online platform that allows artists in Southern Nevada to promote their art and connect with other artists. O'Connell explained that it might not be financially possible to bring back some live performances with capacity restrictions in place. People are always gonna wanna come back. The issue is usually the ROI for the producer. Why is Broadway closed? Not because you can't socially distance in a Broadway house. You could have a very small audience, but how much would that cost you? As the pandemic and health restrictions persist, bringing performing arts back requires a balancing of financial considerations and the safety of everyone involved. For the most part, we're still trying to figure out where we're allowed to do things safely so that we can start to really try to come back. One thing that some may not consider is that performing artists such as Benna Weber can't just start performing again once theaters and shows start opening. They need time to build their muscles back up. So I personally am nervous about that because I don't have a lot of access to studio space right now. But in terms of like, I'm supposed to do Giselle this summer with SNB and I'm, it's a, I'm supposed to do Queen of the Willies, which is a very difficult classical role, you know, and I am, I'm wondering how I'm going to feel when I have the space to really move and jump, you know, like I don't even have a sense of how out of shape I am for that right now. Cause I barely get a chance to do it. I do a lot of supplemental exercises and I use weights and stuff like that on my legs to try to keep them strong, but I don't have a sense of how much less in shape I am than I was. And I don't feel like I'm gonna have a sense of that until I get in the room. On top of the physical toll, there's a financial one too. Those in the arts industry point to a lack of funding as one of the reasons it has been more difficult for artists to recover from the pandemic. Benna Weber says that lack of funding comes from a lack of proper recognition for the value of the industry. I, I feel like 
I feel like it's a general problem in this country that we don't give sufficient importance to the arts. The arts are actually really essential to our economy. And if we put more money into them, they would generate even more money, you know, but like people just can't take that in. Pushing for greater recognition of the arts and for Nevada's creative economy is a big part of the work that O'Connell does. She says it's important for policymakers and other stakeholders to understand that arts are an entire industry and not just a cause. This is an economic sector. It's 5% of the state's GDP. Las Vegas is the hardest hit city in the country, according to the Brookings Institute, for job loss in the creative sector. And we just find out now that Nevada is 12% hit hard, you know, in the hole because of COVID, whereas other states are up. We want to be talking about the creative sector in a way where we understand how we make money. <laughs> and we also understand how we provide services and assistance to things like education. We want people making policy to actually understand what we do. They can leverage our effort as opposed to actually accidentally cutting us off right as we're trying to come back. But the past year has not just been about the financial losses from the pandemic or the struggle for the arts industry to financially recover. Oliver said she has seen Nevada artists relying on one another, and she has seen the community find strength as it has come together. And, and really what I've learned is that we had the ability to rally around one another and to really lift each other up, share resources. It was really a moment of reflection on how really connected the arts and culture community is and the extent that each of us was willing to go to make sure that the others survived. That sense of community has been realized at all levels of the arts. In her role as a teacher, Benna Weber has seen many artists help one another. I think that we have to change our art, especially for those of us who make art that helps people with their lives. Do you know what I mean? Especially like young people to parse their experience. Artists throughout Nevada will likely continue to lean on one another as the industry emerges from the pandemic. And though the past year has been filled with negative news, Benna Weber thinks that negativity will be followed by a greater desire for art moving forward. And I've been feeling actually that craving for a richer day-to-day -day life, you know, just in terms of like being like, it's a beautiful world. People are cool. Food is good. You know, just stuff like that. And I, I'm very optimistic that everything that's created, whether it's chefs getting back in the kitchen or bands getting back in the studio or dance clubs opening, you know, all of that contribution, which is all art, I have a feeling everything is going to be tastier and groovier and more magical. As we trek further into a post-pandemic era, and as more people get vaccinated, there are signs of reopening. The Life is Beautiful Music Festival in downtown Las Vegas is planning to come back this fall, the Smith Center for Performing Arts has events on its calendar for September, and you can buy tickets to concerts at certain venues in Reno now. We'll hear more from venues like those in two weeks, but next week we'll be joined by some more artists and arts organizers. The story was reported, produced, and edited by Sean Galanka and myself, Joey Lovato, with editing help from Michelle Rendells.
On January 8th, 2021, Twitter permanently suspended former President Donald Trump from the social media platform. Many opponents of the president rejoiced at the suspension, in part blaming Trump's tweets for helping incite the mob that attacked the U.S. Capitol just two days prior. But Trump supporters said the suspension of the president's account was an example of big tech companies taking censorship too far. It led to Republicans throughout the country introducing bills aimed at cracking down on what they see as unfair censorship by social media companies. That's why Assemblyman Greg Hafen says he's introducing AB 289, a bill that would put restrictions on social media's ability to censor or ban users or content. We talked to Hafen about his bill as well as indie columnist David Colborn, who wrote an opinion piece criticizing the bill as ineffective and a transparently optimistic attempt at harvesting the persecution complexes of his supporters. First, we'll hear from Assemblyman Hafen as to why he sponsored the bill. You know, my, my main reason is actually this right here, what we're doing is to, to start having this conversation about what's going on. You know, we've, we've got our, our First Amendment for a reason. It was clearly the, the foundation for self-governing and to be able to voice our opinions. And whether or not these platforms now are the 21st century public squares. And if we're going to continue to censor one side of the argument, we're really just polarizing the nation rather than actually having a conversation and a debate about it. You know, when the leader of the free world is being censored on the largest public square in the world, it, it starts to raise concerns. And that is where it started. You, you don't see dictators or other presidents of other nations like Iran. I mean, they're still on there. Um, they're still on Twitter and they haven't been censored. And so I, I just think that if we're going to have these be the, the 21st century public squares, then they should be uh, and remain open. But Colborne says the bill runs into many issues with Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934, which is generally used to protect websites from oversight such as moderation of protected speech. So Section 230, otherwise known as the Communications Decency Act, is very straightforward. It basically says that websites aren't liable for content posted on them by their users. Long story short, basically it means if you're a website owner and a user posts something on your website, then you're not going to be held liable for it. You know, as far as do you get to moderate it or not? Well, it's your website, it's your property. So AB 289 is a very short bill. And by the way, I do want to give uh, Assemblyman Hafen a lot of credit for that. I mean, compared to some of the bills that we've seen in the legislature, seeing a page and a half bill is a refreshing uh, drink of water there. I'm reading Hafen's bill and I think, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not going to pretend I am, but you know, if the point is to reduce the effect of Section 230 to allow web providers to meaningfully censor content on their platforms, then having a provision that literally encodes Section 230 in the Nevada state law doesn't solve the problem from a technical legal standpoint. So how would Hafen's bill work in practice? Here's what he had to say. Each state has different driving rules and regulations. A speeding ticket in California is different than it is in Nevada, and it's different in Utah. However, we have the right to, to continue to drive from one state to the other. And that's kind of where, where I look at this bill as, as a starting point to those kinds of discussions on how we're going to have the interaction with these platforms. And, and each state will probably end up being different. 
under, I believe it's section one, subsection two, it actually spells out some of that stuff where it's obscene, threatening, harassing, advocating violence, or otherwise objectionable under U.S. Code 230. And so that's where my big thing is, is consistency and trying to, not saying that, that we're going to have the left or the right viewpoint only, it's, it's consistency with what they're going to prohibit when it comes to these, these sorts of things. Like I said earlier, I think it's important to be able to debate both sides of the issues. And so I don't want to see just ending up having one side or the other being silenced. I have noticed a couple of smaller individuals that are friends of mine that have had temporary suspensions on Facebook for one. I have to go back and look. I believe that there has been some on Twitter as well, right after the uh, president was suspended. Hafen says that Twitter is the new public square and should be open to the president as an easy way for them to communicate with the public. But Colborn says that Twitter isn't the only way a president can communicate with the public and that the platform doesn't necessarily have a legal obligation to let the president tweet. You know, the question is, should the president of the United States have access to platforms that don't want to give the president of the United States a platform? And if you say, well, Twitter has to provide access to that, well, what about, what about Fox? Does that mean that now Fox News has to broadcast every Joe Biden press conference, just philosophically, because, well, it's president of the United States? I mean, first off, the president of the United States has access to more media platforms usually than anybody else on the planet. Like, if you can't be heard on Twitter, you can probably be heard by writing a letter as the 45th president of the United States and then getting everyone to screenshot it and share it themselves. You can call a press conference at any time. There's nothing that says Twitter is obligated to host Donald Trump's speech or Joe Biden's speech, for that matter. Hafen says he's talking to his colleagues in the assembly, both on the left and right side of the aisle, about the bill. He says it's not about parties. It's about giving the president or anyone else a voice on a very public and popular platform. So I've, I've actually talked to some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle and actually had some suggestions of, of some other things that we might want to include in here which is encouraging to me because that means that, that at least some of them are amenable to having this conversation and, and working together to you know, ensure and protect our uh, freedom, of, freedom of speech. I'd say the same thing if President Biden was suspended from Twitter. I, I just don't think that the leader of the free world should be suspended and it is the most direct means of communication that, that I think we've ever had in knowing what our president is thinking at a spur of the moment. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, the president should have that voice, and, and so should each and every single one of us. But Colborn says social media platforms, even as they have become behemoths of communication, aren't obligated to just let anyone use the service, whether it be questionable tweets from the president or anarchist accounts. Honestly, they exist to sell advertising. And consequently, what they are going to do is they are going to curate speech in a way that advertisers find beneficial to get money to. And that's going to deplatform a lot of people. It deplatformed Donald Trump. It also routinely deplatformed sex workers. It deplatforms anarchists. Back in June, July, there was a sweeping banning of anarchist groups, both left and right wing, you know, anarcho capitalists on the libertarian side, or, you know, Anarcho-communists on the left side, you know, when some of the BLM protests over in Seattle and Portland were heating up. 
And a lot of that is advertiser driven. So nobody's forcing us to be on Facebook or Twitter. You know, that's something we do to ourselves. We can always be doing literally anything else. Hafen's bill hasn't been scheduled for a hearing and still faces long odds in the Democratic-controlled legislature. This story was originally reported by Riley Snyder with editing help from me, Joey Lovato. All right, and so we are here on the DC debrief with our man in DC, Humberto Sanchez. Humberto, how is it going? Great. It's great to be here. Good. How's the weather? <laughs> we got a bit of a cold snap. It was opening day yesterday, and yeah. of course, everything was canceled because of COVID. But <laughs> your opening day here is typically freezing, and it, it was in line with past historical precedent. It was like 38, and today is it's also in the 30s. It's, it's, there's a cold wind. My gosh, we are, we are in like the 70s here in Rio. It's beautiful. It's perfect oh, wow. weather. <laughs> well, let's get into the the big, pretty much the only thing that we're going to be talking about this week, which is the infrastructure bill. I mean, let's just start by, can you explain what this is and why it's being talked about right now? Sure. So, so this is the second item on President Biden's agenda. The first one being the American Rescue Plan, which was the COVID relief package, a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. And then, so this is the second item on that, and this is the American Jobs Plan, and it is a $2 trillion package, which is essentially breaks down into four different silos. The first being transportation infrastructure, which gets about $621 billion. The second tranche is infrastructure related to the home or quality of life infrastructure is what they like to call it. That's $650 billion, and that includes like broadband, water and sewer and electricity grids stuff that, uh, that you need to live. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it also includes $400 billion for what they call the care economy, which is caring for seniors and those with disabilities. And then there's $580 billion in the, in the package for beefing up the supply chain, retraining workers, and to help strengthen manufacturing. So it's a pretty diverse take on, on infrastructure, but they're all interrelated if, if you think about it. Yeah, so we've got these four kind of tranches that are going to be that are going to be supposedly you know helping create jobs and stimulate the economy. What have they been talking about? What's the support? Are people like wanting to vote for this, or or, or is there a lot of backlash? Well, there's a lot of backlash from Republicans. The path forward on this is is definitely through Democratic votes. So right now, they Senator Mitch McConnell, who leads the Republicans in the Senate, has said that they, he doesn't support the bill. He doesn't like. The pay for, which is to raise the corporate the corporate tax to 28% from 21%. And they'll also tinker with multinational corporations and, and get some more tax from them. And they say this will pay for that bill over 15 years. But McConnell yesterday said that, you know, that the last thing this economy needs is to tax the, the productive sector of the economy and uh, therefore, you know, kill this recovery. So he said they're going to fight it every step of the way. And so... If we look at our, our representative, Mark Amaday, who is the Republican in the delegation, he's typically in lockstep with his Republican brethren. So I don't expect him to vote for it. I, I haven't talked to him about it yet, but I expect that he'll be, as he did with the American Rescue Plan, he'll raise concerns about the costs and the deficit, and he'll probably want a more focused and targeted response, which is what basically what McConnell said as well. You know, he, he, he also made light of the fact that some of this money is going to electric vehicles. He also said that, you know, we, he believes we should pay for the infrastructure we can afford, and he doesn't think we can afford this. But there are a lot of projects that, that need to be addressed 
to create jobs. What this plan does is to make us to try to make us competitive with places like China, with states like China. And so there are some definitely some projects that would could get support in in, in Nevada from this plan. And they include we saw as soon as this was announced on Wednesday, Amtrak that evening said it would be getting eighty billion dollars from the plan, and that they would use that to create thirty new routes in the in the United States, including Las Vegas to Los Angeles. Las Vegas is one of the few larger cities that does not have Amtrak service. So yeah, that that would be a big deal because you know Las Vegas does ha- has no Amtrak service, and, and that I-15 corridor would also get support because there's a a push to widen I-15 between Las Vegas and the and the California line. There's also a high speed train that they're trying to build in that corridor as well, and there. The company that's running that or that's built developing that is called Brightline West. And, and I, I reached out to them to see if this Amtrak project would be kind of would compete with them or would be a welcome addition. And their spokesperson, Ben Port, basically said that he thinks that there's room for both a private train and a public train, with Amtrak being a public government owned national passenger rail provider, mm-hmm. thinks that there's room for both. And so that, that's going to be interesting. And I talked to Robert Lang, who teaches at UNLV. He's one of the foremost people on urban development in the country. And he basically said that there's room for all those pieces of infrastructure in that corridor because it's a, a regionally significant corridor. If he said, if, if you look at just the trucking that's coming into that corridor from the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, adding rail to that would take would free up capacity on the I-15 and the trucking industry would just love that. And it would, it would increase uh, throughput. You'd get more goods, more services, and it would just increase economic activity throughout the corridor. And another project that's uh, important to the region is I-11. The, the section between the Nevada border and Phoenix has to get done. It's the only two big cities that are not, aren't connected by an interstate. And that project, Robert Lang says, is a no-brainer because it would produce substantial economic growth, open, opening up the Northwest flow of traffic to between the Canadian border and the Mexican border and the East West, West traffic between California and Texas. We've got this Amtrak or, and this private train between Vegas and LA. And, and there's also this whole infrastructure. Are there any other infrastructure things related to Nevada that would, this bill would kind of bring in or start projects with? There weren't, there weren't any details at that level yet. The white house right now is, has this basically this proposal and there are a lot of unknowns right now. It's, one in particular is they don't know how exactly they're going to distribute this money if the bill passes. Right now, highways and transit is financed through something called the Highway Trust Fund, which, which is basically a collection of all the, the gas tax. You pay about, I think, 18.4 cents a gallon at the pump. That money is collected into this Highway Trust Fund, and it's distributed back out to the states through this formula, and they use that to build roads and, and transit. That system could go by the wayside because if you're going to finance this with corporate tax receipts, you wouldn't need to increase the, ga- the gas tax or use the gas tax. I don't know that they would eliminate the gas tax, but you wouldn't have to rely on it solely as, has we, as we've tried to do in the past since about 2008. 2008 was the year that they had to start adding money to the general fund because the gas tax was not supporting the, the amount of infrastructure development that Congress had approved. And you said, too, that there's not a lot of Republican support on this bill, so they're going to have to get every Democrat to vote for it. What are the likelihoods that we're going to see the vote soon? And, and you know, what are the likelihoods that it's going to pass? So Speaker Nancy Pelosi has proposed she wants to pass this by the July 4th recess. So that, that's pretty soon. 
And uh, then the, the Senate would take it up after that. So we wouldn't probably see anything until maybe the fall. Okay. You just need to get make sure that you have all your Democrats vote for the bill. Uh, and it looks like that they'll be spending this this time between now and and in July getting all their ducks in a row, making sure everybody's okay with the bill, making sure that people are going to support it. All right. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for, for giving us a little debrief on what is going on in the nation's capital. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Sean Galanka, Tracy Oliver, Ananda Bena Weber, Sarah O'Connell, Riley Snyder, Greg Hafen, David Colborn, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, we're on every platform. Also, share the show with a friend or on social media. It helps the show grow so we can continue to bring you fantastic interviews and updates every week. Email us with any questions, comments, concerns, praise, movie suggestions, exercise tips, or whatever else is on your mind. You can reach me at joey at thenvindy.com, and Jacob is at jacob at thenvindy.com. Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There was additional music in today's episode from Lance Conrad, Near Ben Ami, Storyblocks, and original music by our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.